Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The weather. Everyone talks about it, but no one writes a 500-page book about how it affected the Civil War. Until now. Kenneth No, professor of history at Auburn University, returns to the show tonight to talk about how weather affected almost every facet of the war, as he describes in his new book, The Howling Storm, Weather, Climate, and the American Civil War. Join us for some talking about the weather tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Pandemic Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, but not on the campus of East Carolina University, where we would normally be not speaking for the campus or ECU or anyone else, just myself. My guest likewise speaks only for himself tonight. It is the last show of the fall 2020 season. The end of anything in the year 2020 is something most of us are probably looking forward to. Uh, It has been certainly a year to remember. And uh, this, hopefully the season we're bringing to an end tonight of Civil War Talk Radio has not been one of the things, uh, one of the lowlights of the year compared to all the the, uh, truly stressful things that have gone on, most notably of which, of course, is the the coronavirus uh, epidemic. The uh, epidemic has had many consequences. Uh, Among them, it has affected the football teams. I like to share news with you about each week. This week was actually a great week for my two teams. The 
ECU where I work in University of Michigan where I was an undergraduate in that they went undefeated, neither team played, ECU's season is over, and Michigan's game against Maryland was canceled due to the pandemic. And furthermore, their upcoming game against Ohio State was just canceled yesterday, meaning no annual beatdown this year uh, from the Buckeyes. So I'm, I'm taking what I can get from this in terms of good news. With the, uh, it, it's also the end of the semester here. The, uh, the last exams were finished up before Thanksgiving so that we, we started early and finished early so the students wouldn't have to travel back and forth over a holiday. And uh, yesterday I got feedback on the courses that were taught this past semester. The annual student feedback exercise was completed. And since I've been complaining with you about how these courses have gone, especially the uh, eight-week block system that was, was foisted upon us, I'm happy to share that the feedback came through not too bad. Uh, the usual U-shaped curve of uh, haters at one end and fans at the other uh, prevails in most student feedback I've found over my career. And uh, here, most of the vitriol, to the extent there was any, was, was not aimed at me, but at the eight-week uh, course format. Students didn't like it any better than instructors did, and most of the students were kind enough not to blame me for it. Uh, one student who liked the course uh, said some nice things about me, always welcome to hear, including the uh, statement that, that, I was, that I had ultra-instinct which I had to look up. turns out to be something from Japanese anime uh, cartoon superhero stories. Apparently, uh, I can reach a state in which I dissociate dis uh, body from consciousness and thus enhance my martial arts ability. That's ultra instinct, uh, if I read that correctly. I don't think I can actually do that, uh, but I was found it amusing that a student went uh, went in that direction uh, in regard to the course. In other ECU news, which I know this is where you turn to find out what's happening, our interim chancellor, Ron Mitchelson, has announced he's retiring at the end of the academic year. We'll shortly know who will be the full-time chancellor. Uh, I haven't heard that yet, though, but this is a chance for me to say publicly uh, I've known Ron for many years, and while I did not agree with everything he did, certainly not the eight-week block system, he has been an exceptionally honest and direct administrator and completely free of ambition for higher office, just trying to do what was best for the university uh, all the way through his stint as interim chancellor, and, and I appreciate that very much. Well, you won't be able to get further news on ECU till we return from winter break uh, in January, but you can always find out what's happening here at Civil War Talk Radio by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org, where you will see our returning show, January 13 of 2021. We'll feature Stephen Barry from Georgia. Uh, he will be talking about non-print Civil War scholarship, digital scholarship and other things. I'm looking forward to that discussion very much. In the meantime, uh, old-fashioned print scholarship continues to thrive. You can buy many of the books you hear 
advertised on the show, when you go to impedimentsofwar.org, click on the link there. You buy them from Amazon, not from me. Uh, but if you pass through the website, it, it passes a few pennies along to our webmaster, Mark Gaffney, who runs it, and it's much appreciated. You can also donate while you're there to the Civil War Talk Radio book and other things fund. It's your last chance to make a non-tax-deductible contribution before the end of the year, and it would be absolutely the same as if you did it at the start of the new year because you can't deduct it either way. Uh, I'm not responsible for what happens with those funds once they come in. There's no transparency, no accountability, no responsibility whatsoever on my part. Uh, Just gratitude. I do appreciate when you're able to uh, contribute to the show. You can do that from the PayPal button at impedimentsofwar.org, where uh, I don't know how it works, but but you can do that. In the past, uh, one more comment before we bring our guest along. I was looking online at uh, Patrick Young's uh, fine blog on the Reconstruction Era, He recently commented on the best uh, Civil War blogs and podcasts of the past month, November 2020, and mentioned this one. He he wrote, uh, the granddaddy of Civil War podcasting is Jerry Prokopovich, who hosts Civil War Talk Radio. Now, the show's been going for 16 years. It's certainly the oldest Civil War podcast, possibly the oldest history podcast of any kind, that has been running continuously, but I myself am not a granddaddy, uh, even though I no longer play senior league soccer. Uh, I do have two daughters, but no grandchildren. Uh, I do not count my older daughter's cat, who is here with us, as she has uh, is continuing her medical school studies from home. Everything is remote nowadays, so saving on the rent. She's here, and she has brought her cat, uh, Lou, officially Lumen Jones, LLC. Apparently, he's a principal in some kind of feline law firm. Uh, But uh, uh, he's in the room with me right now, and so I'm sorry to say is his litter box. But let's move on ahead. Uh, This past year has seen a lot of really good books published on the Civil War. Uh, Many of them are referred to in the Civil War Monitor magazine's annual Best Books of the Year survey article, and the only reason why tonight's book, The Howling Storm, Weather, Climate, and the American Civil War, wasn't mentioned by every contributor to that article, I think, is because the book came out late in the year after the deadline for the article uh, had passed for the contributors, so... If you were writing for it, you didn't get a chance to read the book. I didn't get to read it until this week, but it's really quite something. The author is Dr. Kenneth W. No. He's been on the show before. Uh, Ken, are you there? I am right here, Jerry. How are you? Good. Welcome back to the show. It was uh, 2005. The first time you were on was 2005, and the second time was five years later in 2010, and then it was 10 years until today. So at this rate, our next talk will be in 2040. Uh, I assume you'll have a new book ready to go by that time. I'm shooting for 2035 because I can't imagine 
writing another book <laughs> as long as the one you read this week. So I mean, I'm trying to go back to smaller, well, more easily digestible <laughs> volumes. Well, so this, we'll shoot this, for 35. 30, that sounds reasonable. Hey, this book is really has generated a lot of buzz. Um, people I, I see on non-academic Civil War boards are talking about it. It has the potential to be a sort of ultimate geek book of detail of weather throughout the war that would be interesting only to people listening to this show and not even all of them. But clearly you found something more interest, more significant in this topic, uh, or you had to just to have started researching it. Uh, so what, what, what brought you to this topic? Well, I think I started thinking about whether in the Civil War well over 20 years ago. Um, as you will remember, the first time I was on the program, it was to talk about my book on the Battle of Perryville, a book that... Yes. That, uh, that excellent book. You know well, and I know your work well. We've both written about Perryville. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember knowing a bit about the battle and campaign when I first started. And I was struck early on in my research by the importance of weather in that entire campaign. Uh, the Kentucky campaign, Bragg's Kentucky campaign, as we sometimes call it, took place in a drought. Mm-hmm. The drought affected both armies as they left Tennessee, Alabama, moved back into Kentucky. Uh, the battle itself began as a fight over some pretty rare water resources. So the Perryville years uh, really attuned me to thinking about the importance of weather and the environment more generally uh, when it came to civil war battles and campaigns. And I found that once I started thinking that way, the more I began to notice the importance of weather conditions when I read about other battles and campaigns and when I read about the home front. And as I say in the book, uh, I started teaching it more and more. You know, we sometimes have this conversation in academia about what's more important, research or teaching. And for me, the two have always reinforced each other. So I was going into the classroom and talking about uh, Fort Henry and Donaldson or talking about uh, the Peninsula Campaign. And I found myself mentioning the weather, stressing the importance of the weather. And I think there was a point several years ago when I started telling my classes, golly, you know, somebody should really write a really good book about (laughs) Civil War weather. And they would all stare at me. And, you know, one morning I essentially just decided maybe I should. Um, It was certainly a subject that I was interested in. Um, as, as you know, I also mentioned this in the book. My grandparents raised me in southwest Virginia. I grew up on a farm. Uh, they were very weather conscious. You have to be when you're farming. Um, everything in my house had to stop while the weather forecast was on. So I've always been sort of weather attuned. But then the Perryville book really got me thinking about the connection between the Civil War and weather. And I have to say, the research for this book has just convinced me more and more that this is a vital element of understanding the Civil War that we've missed. Well, as I was reading, I mean, the book 
in format is really a narrative of the entire war. You you, you touch on mm-hmm. most of the significant campaigns, and in each one you you describe it uh, sufficiently for someone who doesn't know anything about it will will at least know what's going on. Uh, but you put it in the context, in particular, of the weather that is influencing all the decisions and all the actions. Uh, were there any? Is this a comprehensive? Uh, coverage of campaigns as I think back I'm trying to think if there's a major campaign that you don't talk about I hit all the major campaigns I don't hit every battle Um, Mm -hmm. somehow the Fort Pillow Massacre ended up in the end notes Mm -hmm. Um, but I did try to be fairly comprehensive in terms of major campaigns in the three theaters and I stress three theaters. I really wanted to include the Trans-Mississippi. We, we leave it out too often. Um, so to that extent, I think it, it approaches being comprehensive. But I have to say, um, in other ways, it's really not. Uh, I think about the, the subjects that I could not include. Um, there's not a lot there on the naval war. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot there on the coastal war. I have some really neat research on what it was like to be in one of those coastal fortifications during the war. That's a topic we've largely ignored. I may go back to that. But There's so not it's a lot safe in to say the guerrilla warfare. But that ahead, it's not a cherry-picked selection where where you pick just the campaigns where weather was particularly interesting or or dominant. It, it really does cover them all. It's time for us to take a short break. I want to come back and ask uh, some technical questions about weather too that that we don't see in other Civil War books at all. Uh, and we'll do that when we return in just a moment. Talking tonight with Kenneth W. No author of The Howling Storm, Weather, Climate, and the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Kenneth W. Noe, N-O-E, author of The Howling Storm, Weather, Climate, and the American Civil War. Ken, one, one of my favorite things about reading books for this show is when I get to read something that I knew absolutely nothing about in advance. And in this case, uh, climate, uh, you point out, uh, what you've done in here, it seems to me, is apply modern meteorology to the Civil War. Could you talk about the climate zones, for example, that that the country is divided into today and presumably applied in the Civil War as well? The federal government today divides North America, the United States, into various climate zones. The one I used was created by the Department of Energy. It's essentially based on how many days a year someone might have to heat their home. And it breaks the country down into various zones which run roughly east to west on a map, although not perfectly east to west. And the climate within each of those zones is different in terms of rainfall, in terms of um, temperature, both summer and winter, you know, how many days does it fall below freezing. And it was interesting when I started looking at the maps, how they corresponded roughly to those maps we all see in our textbooks or other Civil War books of the Union and the Confederacy. Um, the Confederacy essentially is contiguous with two of those climate zones. Um, much of what we would consider the Union in 1861 is in another climate zone. There's another that sort of runs across the northern tier of the country. Um, you've got different climate zones once you get past the Mississippi, um, certainly in dealing with the New Mexico campaign, for example, you're dealing with your climate zone. But it was it was interesting to take those those maps, those definitions, and then go back and look into what soldiers were writing, say, in 1861 when they were first joining the army, going into camp, uh, trying to learn how to be soldiers, and they matched up really nicely in terms of um, men in the deeper south who were complaining about rain, but not so much temperature. Uh, men along the southern tier of the Union, Pennsylvania, uh, Midwest, who were still uh, experiencing some pretty cold nights, it, it matched up pretty well in terms of what they were describing as they were preparing to go to war. Um, so I, I found that fascinating. I, I, I will say one of the most fun parts of writing this book is I didn't know any of this either. Mm-hmm. So I had a great time putting this together and, and learning about 
um, a little bit about meteorology or soil mechanics or climatology in this case, and then applying it back to um, sources that I was more familiar with. So in terms of learning this material, then, did you do it mostly through you know, library research online? Did you talk to people uh, in other departments? I did all of those things. I was lucky in undergraduate. I took a geography course and, and learned the basics of, of, of weather. So I, I had a background there. But yes, I mean, I checked out books. I educated myself as best I could. I looked at things on the Internet. And I talked to a lot of people, uh, people in different departments here at Auburn, but also people around the country. When I was trying to get a handle on historic meteorology, I was talking to uh, the incredible Carrie Mock, who teaches at the University of South Carolina. I was talking to meteorologists and geographers in Missouri as I was trying to get a handle on Wilson's Creek. Um, so I did all of those things in an effort to try to have a clue as to what actually was going on you know, beyond what soldiers were telling me in their, their diaries and their letters. You know, what was really I, happening there? Say, I noticed in the acknowledgments you, you point out that you had a, a local meteorologist read the manuscript. So, did, how are I those did. people we, we sit who are here every night. We, we sit here every night and watch one of our affiliates, <laughs> and I've watched this, this gentleman do the weather for years, so I actually just contacted him and said, would you mind reading this to see if I got anything wrong? And it turns out he's, he's a history buff, so he was happy to do ah. it. And he made several really good suggestions. Um, so, yes, even that was that was a learning experience for me. It was also a lot of fun um, getting to know someone like that. That that is one of the great things in in the field when when you go you know outside the boundaries like that, and you know, in this case, talk to meteorologists and. Uh, geographers or geologists. You, you talk a lot about soil as well. Um, in the, uh, I think it's Silver, uh, uh, Tim Silver's book on environmental history mm-hmm. of the Civil War uh, has has chapters about the the actual content of the soil in uh, Virginia, and you take that a step further, and th- th- your discussion of altisols and uh, alpha sols and inceptisols, words I've never seen anywhere. Uh, what are these words? What do they mean? To, to give us, uh, uh, what, what will the reader find when they, they, they learn about these things? Sure. I should, I should say, first of all, that, that I knew that Tim Silver and Jack and Browning were writing during the environmental history of the war, and they knew what I was working on, so we, we corresponded a lot with each other. Uh, I certainly read their chapter. Um, fairly early on um, and that was nice too. to actually have a, at least a small scholarly community that was discussing these things but in terms of soil a few minutes ago you mentioned uh, the climate zones well there are also basic soil zones and they go from the most general to incredibly specific uh, I actually used the, the most basic the most general soil maps, soil definitions, 
in this book. I, I really didn't want to get lost in the, the weeds. I know at least one geographer who disagrees with that decision, but I think it was the right way to go in terms of writing a book about the Civil War for people who are interested in the war. The nation is divided into regions um, based on the kind of soil they have. Those of us who live in the South uh, know a lot about that red clay that we encounter every time it rains and we're sloshing through it and it's possible to get off our cars or our boots. Well, that's Altasol. Uh, it's a soil that has a very high clay component and it's fairly low in terms of nutrients. And again, when I started reading about this and looking at maps, where are there Altasols? Where is there red clay in the country? It's amazing how closely that Red clay region corresponds to the eighteen sixty one map of the Confederacy. Now it's not perfect. Um, it doesn't extend into the mountains where I grew up. Uh, it doesn't extend to the coasts in some cases. But remarkably enough, we think about Confederates talking about, you know, their sacred soil. Their sacred soil was essentially this red clay ultrasol. And it did not extend very far beyond what became the boundaries of the Confederacy. It does sort of poke up into Maryland and Delaware. And I think most fascinating is that there's a, a, little, a little finger, a little projection of this red clay belt that runs up through Maryland into Pennsylvania. And it runs right into Gettysburg. It literally runs right up to the Round Tops. Um, I spoke up there a few years ago. I mentioned this for a talk, and it was it was it was wonderful. Um, folks like Daryl Black and Pete Neal at the Seminary Ridge Museum, and people who came to my talk that day spent the next month emailing me. They had actually been driving around Adams County trying to find the extent of the red clay belt, uh, which which runs south of Gettysburg, but is not west of Gettysburg. Once you get into the passes, and once you get across the mountains that area that eventually Lee would use for his escape. It's not Altasol. It's not Red Clay. Um, needs Pursuit took place during that, well, in the middle of that Red Clay zone. So that was, that was fascinating. And yes, I do end up writing a lot about, about soil because I think it's an important component of the Civil War that we have missed entirely. If you think about what I just described, that means that most Union soldiers, when they came south, had never encountered this red clay at all. And they hated it. Mm. And they got stuck in it constantly because unlike the soils that they were used to up north, there was no solid footing in wet red clay two or three feet down. Uh, if you get stuck out in a, in a rainy field in New Hampshire or in Michigan, um, eventually you're going you're gonna to dig down, your horse will dig down until you find a solid zone and you can pull yourself out. That doesn't happen in red clay. That, that depth is so far below the surface. I, I love the... Uh, described it as bottomless. You relay the story of the Wisconsin regiment marching through that kind of mud and finally one soldier yells out, four fathoms, and someone else who's mm -hmm. also a river man goes, four and a half... And the third guy's, you know, quarter twain, and someone else yells, no bottom. 
uh, and everybody wow. starts laughing. That literally, mm-hmm. the it's like a river with no you can't touch the bottom. It's so deep. Uh, yeah. But it is very. And they had to learn how to negotiate this. They had to learn how to move troops and and horses and wagons and caissons through this. And it, there was a learning curve there that took place in actually trying to move through the the South in rain or in snow. And, and they also, I'll, I'll mention this too, not having the sort of geologic knowledge that, that we have in the 21st century, they spent time actually trying to figure out what the heck happened to the soil. Why is it so bad? And they finally concluded that, well, it's, it's slavery. Slave labor farming practices have ruined the soil down here. So to them, the soil was not only incredibly impractical, it was, it was immoral. <laughs> so it's a politicized uh, geology. Yeah. Now, let me ask yeah, this. As I was as reading the book, I was struck by how often you describe, or you quote soldiers, rather, describing uh, snow in April or October in the South, or at least in the Upper South, in Tennessee or mm-hmm. uh, Virginia. And even today, it doesn't snow in October and April even in Michigan or Massachusetts very often, uh, growing up there, I, I know that would be very unusual to have snow in, in early May, uh, maybe once in a while. Was the weather more extreme, or was it colder in general in the 1860s than today? It was definitely more extreme. Um, by the time you get to the 1860s, you are emerging from what scientists call the Little Ice Age. So that entire period uh, from, you know, it depends on the scientists that you're, you're reading, but there's disappointment in the 19th century that you, you find the end of this Little Ice Age. And then you can work your way back through the early history of the Republic. You can work your way back through the Revolution, really back to the initial European colonists, and you can find them dealing with unusually cold weather whether it's colder than the average. Uh, That seems to have ended by the Civil War, but instead, what I think we're dealing with, with the war's unusual weather, and it was very unusual, is a couple of um, essential phenomena that were going on elsewhere. If, If you turn on the news tonight or sometime this month, you might hear your local weather person talking about the El Nino phenomenon, which usually becomes apparent in December, hence El Nino, Christ child. Mm-hmm. Um, and the El Nino southern oscillation, to use the technical term, is often compared to a seesaw, depending on weather temperatures, and especially water temperatures, um, in the Pacific, off the coast of Peru and Ecuador. And when those temperatures fluctuate, it affects the jet stream, it affects currents, and it affects weather around the world. Uh, there's actually a debate that's going on among meteorologists right now who are trying to read back into the 19th century, which isn't that easy to do, uh, trying to understand whether the Civil War years were so-called La Nina years, 
more El Nino years. Uh, the most recent research suggests that at least some of those years were El Nino years. Mm-hmm. Alone, that would have been enough to, to affect weather in the United States. But what we never hear about on the weather forecast, or rarely on the Weather Channel, is that there's a similar sort of seesaw out in the Atlantic running roughly between Iceland and the Azores called the North Atlantic Oscillation. And it was very active in the 1860s as well. So you've not only got the El Nino system, um, whether it was at the El Nino pole or the La Nina pole uh, is debatable. I tend to think it was on the El Nino side, but that's just me. You've got that happening. You've also got uh, very unusual conditions in the Atlantic with this North Atlantic Oscillation. So the end result of those two planetary phenomenon is that weather in the Civil War was really out of the ordinary. It was strange. Um, It was not the normal weather that we would expect, which is what we always do, right? I mean, we do exactly what you were just talking about. We assume that the weather we're experiencing in 2020 is normal, quote-unquote, and that weather in the Civil War was also, quote-unquote, normal. And in fact, it was not. And so, it, that, that, go ahead. Well, I'd say, in, in what ways? Like, what what made it ab? What were the symptoms? Colder, hotter, rainier. What What essentially happens is in 1861. I think there's there's really not much debate that those, that's a La Nina year, so it's incredibly hot. In places like the Midwest. That's why you've got those soldiers falling out of line and dying on the way to Wilson's Creek with temperatures that are clearly well over 100 degrees. Those are La Nina conditions. Um, December of 1861, when I think the El Nino phenomenon kicked in, you had a very warm December, unusually warm. Flowers were blooming in Virginia. People were commenting about this. You know, we've never seen this happen before. Uh, it gets very cold around Christmas time, and then it really gets cold at the first of the year. Um, unluckily for all those Confederates who were with Stonewall Jackson trying to get to Bath and Romney. So you got an incredibly cold January, February, March. Uh, it's also snowy farther south. It's rainy. There's a lot of precipitation early in 62 to the degree that planting in the Confederacy is delayed about a month. And so this very unusually rainy weather continues into the summer, and then it stops completely, and you enter a drought phase, which, which, which is what of we Appalachians last. It, it, say we started That's talking about though. that. Say with the Perryville campaign, you have that that drought in '62. Well, we're going to take mm-hmm. another short break. I want to pick this up with some of the more uh, extraordinary symptoms of weather uh, in 1862 and '63 and '64. Uh, we're talking today with Ken No, author of *The Howling Storm: Weather, Climate, and the American Civil War*. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
we're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Kenneth W. No, author of The Howling Storm, Weather, Climate, and the American Civil War. Ken, you were describing how the weather during the war years was not normal by the standards of today or of the 19th century. Uh, The exceptionally wet spring of 1862, you pointed out, uh, affected crops in the Confederacy. And this this had had an impact you suggest has not really been appreciated by historians. Well, I think that's true. When I was in grad school many years ago, we learned that there are two essential ways for understanding Confederate defeat. There's an externalist school which suggests that the war was lost on the battlefield. There's an internalist school which suggests that the Confederacy essentially imploded for all sorts of reasons related to uh, taxation, to the Confederate government's um, inability to win the support of the so-called plain folk, much less uh, women of every economic class of African Americans. Um, and what we've forgotten, I think, is that Confederate policies of taxation, and especially non-monetary taxation, impressment, tax in kind, taxing food, taking food for the army, uh, was not just a, a theoretical or philosophical decision that the Confederate Congress made. They did it for a very practical reason. There was not a lot of food in the Confederacy. And part of that has to do with the loss of certain breadbasket areas. Part of that has to do with the breakdown of the transportation system. But a lot of that was weather-related. In 1862, you had a, a very wet late spring, which delayed planting. Then you had a drought in the fall, which affected in the summer and fall, which affected crops all the way through. So yields were much, much lower in 62. The same thing happened in 1863. In 1864, the drought 
shifts north. It's, it's in many ways more of a middle Atlantic or Midwestern phenomenon, but it still hits Virginia again. It hits Missouri. It hits the upper south. So if you want to look at Virginia, there are, there are three straight years where heavy rains in the spring, followed by drought conditions in the summer and fall, having a devastating effect on southern agriculture. And the fact that there simply isn't enough food to feed everyone will force Richmond to make, I think, a really crucial decision, which is who do we prioritize with our our food production? Do we prioritize the Army or do we prioritize civilians? And they, their priority was the Army. So civilians gave up food. Civilians went without. They hid food when they could from government agents, and it created that that rich man's war, poor man's fight mentality that we all talk about in our classes. It's it's weather related. The weather is the foundation of those policies. The weather is the foundation of all of those bread riots that we read about in the Confederacy. Um, I, I, I worked construction when I was in college, when I was an undergrad, and I worked on a foundation crew. You can't build a building without a foundation. I think we've been arguing about why the Confederacy lost the war for decades and decades without the foundation. The foundation is, um, well, our bad planting seasons followed by drought. That, in some ways, answers a question that I had going into this book, uh, because it, it, while you do talk about all the major military campaigns, you don't limit uh, your coverage to that in, in this discussion of how weather affects uh, southern crop production is, is central to what you're arguing here. But you do spend a lot of time talking about military campaigns. And I recall in an undergraduate course, uh, John Shy, my undergraduate mentor at, at Michigan, saying, uh, disagreeing with the argument that uh, Napoleon and Hitler were both stopped in Russia by the Russian winter, uh, he would just look at the class and say, it was just as cold for the Russians. In other words, the weather, you know, the rain falls on the just and the unjust uh, equally. So studying the weather is interesting, but it doesn't explain anything about the outcome of the war because both sides get equally wet or equally cold or equally hot. Uh, now, you've already shown how it affects food production differently, but what about the, the armies? Was there an unequal effect of weather, or is it just a wash? Well, I don't think it's a wash at all. Um, you know, I have to mention, I mentioned the North Atlantic Oscillation mm-hmm. a few minutes ago. During much of the Civil War, it was at a very negative point. Uh, the North Atlantic Oscillation was also at a very negative point uh, during Napoleon's invasion of Russia and during the Battle of the Bulge. So... You know, we could talk about weather in those campaigns <laughs> as well. It's, it's perhaps being more important than, than Professor Shaw suggested at the time. Although he's certainly such a wonderful historian. But to, to get to your question, no, I don't think it was a wash at all. And it's interesting because in 1861, Confederate leaders believed that the weather would help them, that Northerners would not be used to the heat or the red clay or the diseases that seem to crop up around swampy areas, or the fact that the roads got really bad in the winter in the south. And and people in Richmond were very confident, you know, the weather is going to help us. It did not. It actually worked the other way 
most of the time. As I, as I say in the book, weather was a fickle ally. It could sometimes change sides for you know, reasons that were not apparent. But by and large, weather, if we think of it as a separate force for a moment, benefited the Union more because Union soldiers and the Union military were more prepared to deal with it. They had a better supply system. Yes, it fell apart sometimes, but by and large, Union soldiers are going to be better equipped with uniforms, boots, and the like. They have rubber ponchos, which the Confederacy did not have unless they captured them on the battlefield. Uh, Union soldiers, although they had to pay for these items themselves at first, Union soldiers had decent rain gear, which the Confederates were never able to produce because they could not produce the necessary rubber. So the industrial base and the transportation base of of the Union actually allowed the Federal Army not only to overcome uh, southern soil in many cases, southern weather, but put the Confederates at a disadvantage. Uh, weather conditions leave Confederate soldiers hungrier for reasons that we have discussed. They are less well-equipped to deal with uh, inclement weather because of their industrial base and because of supply. So in the end, I, I, I think it's, it's clear to me that the weather conditions of the Civil War are another one of those points that we need to add to those textbook charts of advantages the Union had. Now, another thing that struck me reading the book was was just how bad the weather was almost all the time. Every campaign uh, you describe, you know, from Shiloh, Perryville, Tullahoma in the West, uh, First Manassas, Second Manassas, Peninsula Campaign, Antietam, Gettysburg, everyone, if it's not raining and miserable mud, then it's really, really hot, or if it's Stones River, it's really, really cold. Uh, Were there any was it ever just temperate? Was there ever a nice day to go fight a battle? Oh, sure. It was sometimes. Um, um, the day of the Battle of Antietam was apparently quite pleasant. I think I say in the book it was perfect killing weather, not too hot, not too cold. <laughs> uh, generally sunny. Um, there, there are a lot of comments about weather before and after Antietam, but not during the battle. Probably a better example is Sherman's March to the Sea. Mm-hmm. which was perfect for what he was trying to do. Wonderful weather historian a few years ago, David Ludlam, called it Yankee weather. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cold. Uh, it didn't rain that much. Um, for Sherman's army crossing from Atlanta to Savannah, it was perfect. Um, and Sherman admitted as much when he got to Savannah and was reporting back to Washington. One of the, one of the reasons he listed for success was that the weather was perfect. So as you were researching this, was there anything that really surprised you or, or contradicted something you thought you knew going in? Uh, absolutely. I, I had started changing my mind several years ago about some of the most important characters of the war. But this project really 
pushed me much farther in those directions. I think, for example, that we have given George McClellan a raw deal. I think the problems he faced on the peninsula were very real. His inability to move his army up to Richmond was real. Uh, soldiers themselves talk about it. So my opinion of McClellan is much better than I thought it would be. Um, I'm in, a same, in the same way, I'm, I'm much more of a defender of George Meade after Gettysburg, um, given what he had to face in his pursuit of Lee, both in terms of almost constant running and the fact that the, the route he selected to take south took him right through that red belt, that red clay belt that we talked about earlier, which became a problem as soon as his men started going off the road. Um, in contrast, it's continued to affect my view of Abraham Lincoln. I'm a Lincoln fan. I think he was our greatest president. I have a big Lincoln poster on my office door. <laughs> but I don't think he was perfect, and I disagree with the sort of hoary notion we've all grown up with, that he was a much brighter military mind than his generals. Lincoln, when it comes to weather-related issues, when it comes to logistics, when it comes to the reality of trying to move 100,000 men through wet red clay or through dust or, or snow, um, he never really got it. He was the worst kind of armchair general in those circumstances and expected his men to do so my opinion of of Lincoln has changed in that regard. My opinion of, of Grant has changed a little bit. I mean, we all know the, the classic trope of Lincoln finds a general, Lincoln finally finds Grant, and, and they win this war. Um, they had a very similar mindset, which I never really thought about until I started this project. And Grant, like Lincoln believed that weather was something to be mastered, to be conquered, to be tamed. I mean, we know that Grant was a great horseman and, and that, that he was the guy you turned to if you wanted, you know, somebody's horse broken and trained. He was such a great horseman. Well, he's that way with the weather, too. And so he forges ahead in a way that Abraham Lincoln really likes. It cost his army thousands and thousands of additional casualties during the overland campaign. Well, that, that, uh, I think those really are the things that surprise me most. I never. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say I never thought I would become a McClellan booster, but here I am. <laughs> well, it, it's a persuasive case. Reading about these, uh, uh, about the mud, about the rain, about the heat, uh, and the the things that go along with all those uh, throughout the book. It is a fascinating book, uh, listeners. If you want to take a new look at campaigns you thought you knew all about. Uh, the Howling Storm, Weather, Climate, and the American Civil War by Kenneth No is the book for you. Ken, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Thanks, Jerry. I'll see you again in 2035. We'll look forward to that. And listeners, have a happy and safe holiday season. Wear your mask. Keep your distance. Get your shots when they become available. Let's get rid of this thing so we can get together on the battlefields in 2021. And thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.